Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 56th episode, it's the return of L. Collins. Along the way, we discuss how the B-52s overcame the macho trappings of rock and roll to become the greatest band in the universe, how Mr. Rogers fought the good fight against copyright trolls, and then we go real deep on Pee-wee's Playhouse and queer readings of Saint. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? My name is L. Collins, and I am a writer online. I am best known for casting imaginary movies based on comic books, which is a very strange thing to be known for. Not something that I particularly planned for, but here we are. I also have a few podcasts of my own. I have my oldest podcast, Intuit, which used to be weekly and now it's monthly, and I talk to different guests about their favorite pop culture things. I also do the Hard Times podcast with Megan Nielsen, where we talk about pro wrestling. I do the Lasso of Truth podcast with Juliet Kahn where we talk about Wonder Woman, and I do the Monster Society of Comics with Kieran Chiak, in which we talk about our favorite comics of the month with two panelists each month. I was very surprised and happy to see the Monster Society of Comics pop up because y'all kind of did a bit of a viral marketing thing Mm -hmm. where you were like, oh no, the Monster Society is coming. (laughs) And I know, like, I got gaboed. I was just like, what is it? I bet it's going to be a thing. This looks exciting. And so I followed. And I am now a member of the Monster Society of Comics because apparently all you have to do is follow you on Twitter and say that you're a member and you're then a member. That's how it works. To give credit where credit is due, the Monster Society is pretty much Kieran's brainchild. Like a lot of the ideas there are his, but I'm really happy to be doing it with him. You know, we were the two assistant editors at Comics Alliance, which famously got shut down by its parent company back in April. So we wanted to do something, but mostly because people kept bugging us, like, aren't all you Comics Alliance people going to do something together? And for a long time, we were all like, please be quiet. We lost our jobs. But then Kieran had this idea, and I think it works pretty well. As someone who lost my job mid-April, I'm going to steal a line from Aiden Sullivan and say that you've got to treat being laid off a bit like a breakup, mm-hmm. and you've got to give yourself time to heal and accept that things are not going to be normal for a little while. Yeah, that's very true. I think I had an easier time of it than Kieran and some of the other Comics Alliance people, just to be completely honest about it, because frankly, I was getting a little burnt out. I mean, not like I liked everyone I worked with at Comics Alliance. It's nothing to do with that, but just the like constant grind of creating comics related content every day yeah i was gonna say your guys's level of workload was kind of amazing yeah that you were putting out that much content you know and the culture of comics criticism on the internet can get you down sometimes it's not always a fun and light place to be boy howdy but yes if you liked any of l's old cast party articles they have a new home at is it dreamcasting at sci-fi wire right Yes. Which is great. And recently you did various generations of Wonder Woman movies. Like you did a Golden Age movie and a Silver Age movie and a modern one. And that was really great. And I am very pro Natalie Wood as Wonder Girl. (laughs) That ended up being the last four cast party installments before Comics Lights ended. And I, it felt right to go out on that. And then I came back with Dreamcasting, the first Dreamcasting I did was when the Wonder Woman movie came out, and it was who should be in Wonder Woman 2. So it was a nice sort of bookend, you know. (laughs) Wonder harder. (laughs) Two Wonder, two woman. (laughs) Better, better. 
but yes, I will wholeheartedly credit Elle's articles for letting me know a lot more about like Disney Channel stars and stuff, like actual young actors and actresses. Because most of the time, whenever you talk to your friends about casting someone, all of your picks are like teens from 10 years ago, because that's who people remember as teens. And then you actually look at it and go, oh, right, these characters are meant to be actually 15, not 29 so you have to like mentally change gears and thanks to l i now have a whole bunch of people to be like oh you know who'd be great in that is this person i've done a lot of research so like a lot of the people especially like the teens the younger people they're not necessarily people that i knew going in they're just Mm -hmm. like i need this like this young person that fits this demographic and hopefully this level of talent who exists out there and then i just go on imdb and wherever else and if it's someone that i don't know I usually will go on YouTube and just find a clip of them talking because I don't want to cast someone for a particular part and then have people be like, but their voice. (laughs) (laughs) And that's something that we didn't actually get to talk about last time. Anyone who goes and listens to Intuit, Intuit is an incredibly researched show. Kind of like my heart goes out to you and I'm kind of glad you're doing it monthly now because the amount of research that you take on for each of those things, because sometimes someone will be like, oh, this entire TV series yeah, or a whole bunch of movies or this comic book that goes back 40 years and then you do all the research? (laughs) I said once fairly early on in doing Intuit that I was living that Terry Gross life without that NPR money. (laughs) Because, you know, she's famous for, like, if she has a writer on, she's, like, read all their books when they get there. See, I have it easy, where it's, like, most people that come onto my show, it's just, like, they have podcasts, and I'm already listening to lots of podcasts, (laughs) so I could just be like, cool, I'll just make sure I'm up to date on that podcast. And then there's some, like, hub from Tighten Up the Defense, where it's, like, I'm already saying, where is your new episode? I'm waiting. I need to know. Yeah. So if anyone wants to hear about Elle's personal history or where they grew up or anything like that, you can go on back to episode 12, way back in episode 12, where we talked about growing up and thinking about space fiction and my teacher is an alien and somehow also like the rock lords and uh, those weird Camelot toys with the reflective kind of rub signs in the middle of them. Yeah, it went all kinds of places that episode. But today I want to start with a different question. Elle, Mm -hmm. when did you get into the B-52s? I got into the B-52s when I was 18. I remember the specific... I don't remember exactly like what inspired me to get into them, but I remember exactly when it happened. I mean, I knew them because like, I was... 11 when like you'd heard Rome everywhere and Love Shack like I remember those songs that were kind of everywhere in the early 90s quite well but when I really got into them was in the late 90s when I started college and I think the main reason it happened was just that I started being friends with like indie rock people and we started like going to record stores and i think on some level i was just looking for things that i actually liked that it was like also cool to like i mean that sounds unfortunate to say in a way but you know i was looking for things that i enjoyed that also like my cool friends would be like oh it's cool that you enjoy that i think especially when you're younger there's a certain disconnect to be like i like this but is this okay yeah, everyone around me. You know, no one wants to be milkshake ducked by their own enjoyment of something. Right, exactly. And especially like the fact that I went back and again, I don't remember exactly how I stumbled upon these records if someone else had it and I heard it or whatever, but I specifically remember getting the self-titled debut album and Wild Planet and those being two of my favorite albums even though they were 20ish years old at the time when I was a freshman in college and from there I like got their other albums you know I got really into them then and then I sort of like they were always in my record collection I say record collection but I didn't actually start buying records until this year so my CD slash digital music collection for the next 20 years but I sort of like they weren't like something I was way into until and again I don't remember exactly how this happened either but sometime around 2015 I got like way back into them again I think some of this had to do with YouTube because there's a bunch of like old concert footage that's actually really high quality of like early 80s B-52s on YouTube. That sort of led me to my activist stance, which I still stand by 100% sincere, which is that the B-52s are one of the greatest rock bands of all time. And the fact that they are largely regarded as a novelty act is largely because they're queer. 
that actually makes a lot of sense. So please feel free to elaborate. Well, I think that, you know, people will say, oh, well, they're perceived as a novelty act because their biggest hits are novelty songs like Rock Lobster and Love Shack. But if you actually look at those songs, like what they're doing is a very queer sort of performance of camp in the form of a rock song. And so it like there's a lot to the difference in the way that people, you know, from within the queer community, and I don't want to be too uh, essentialist about this. When I say the queer community, I really mean like the queer community and people that are like down with that versus the way that like more stereotypically straight music fans perceive their music because there's a sort of rock as like an art form is so dominated by straight men that I feel uncomfortable saying rock as an art form because that phrase sounds like such a straight man thing to say. (laughs) You're not wrong. But then if you actually, like if you listen to their full albums, like songs like Planet Claire and Give Me Back My Man, which is one of my very favorite B-52 songs. These are just amazing, perfectly constructed new wave rock songs. Yeah, and the thing is, I think what, like you mentioned that, you know, Love Shack and Rock Lobster are novelty songs. And really, I think, had they not gotten the massive overplay of like the karaoke circuit or like the pub quiz kind of pop music being used as a sound effect if they hadn't gotten that level of overplay i honestly wouldn't think they'd be considered novelty songs because they're good songs yeah totally it's one of those things where it's only like one of those things like okay in North America, Midnight Oil was referred to as a one-hit wonder because of beds are burning in the 80s and nothing else. And then I moved to Australia and realized, oh no, there's a huge history with tons of albums and they're considered a legitimate serious rock band. And it's just one of those things where, you know, outside of that context, I heard B-52s at every kind of 80s night or karaoke night or something and some idiot would get up to do rock lobster and would do a bad job of it because because it's incredibly complex there's nobody like fred (laughs) yeah it's really hard to do because and it's a long song it's a marathon it's not a sprint what actually did it for me was and i'm sorry this is a tangent it's okay i have further tangents okay but you go first when i was in like my first four or five years in australia money was very tight and so what i would do is i would go and i would get a, a magazine called the word which would come with a free CD, which is, it was a British music magazine. And it was known for, you know, it was actually a fairly broad listing of music. I would find bands I'd never heard of, and they would always come with a CD. And the CD always had really cool art on the, on the front. It was always like bespoke art that they commissioned for that CD. So it wasn't just like NME with like their logo saying, this is the hits of, you know, July 2006. What happened is they did a huge 10-page write-up of the Funplex album. And they put Funplex, the title track, on their CD of the month. And I listened to it, and I was like, Wait, this is the B-52s? I thought they only did, like, Rock Lobster and Love Shack. This is a really fun and funny and interesting song, which led to me doing the first ever iTunes purchase of an entire album, which I did for Funplex, and Funplex is a great album. Yeah, I actually wasn't turned on to Funplex for a long time because it's, like, it's later B-52s, and it was actually my friend Jessica, who's been on Into It a Bunch, who was like, no, you need to give Funplex a chance. And in fact, it is really good. I was going to say something else about Jessica specifically and the complexity of B-52 songs, which is that we used to go to karaoke. In fact, one of the really early into it episodes was me and her and one of our other friends talking about karaoke because we used to go to karaoke all the time in chicago a few times she and i would do love shack and you know i would do fred schneider and she somehow would do both what kate pearson and cindy wilson how Exactly. Wizardry. Tube and throat singing. What the hell? Well, the first time we did it, we didn't really think about it. We were just like, you know, I'll do the deeper part and you do the higher part. This is me as a genderqueer person not saying the male vocal and the female vocal. Then we sort of realized part of the way through that like Cindy Wilson and Kate Pearson are doing different things. But Jessica is better at karaoke than anyone I've ever known. And she somehow (laughs) was able to pull it off. That's amazing. Like, Jessica could do things at karaoke that other people would never dare think of. Like, I've seen her do Grimes, and I've seen her do the entirety of Monster by Kanye West and so forth. Nice. And again, that's another one with tons of different vocal parts. Yeah. And different cadences and stuff. And wow, that'd be weird. But wait a minute. 
There are karaoke bars with Grimes on the list? Okay, well, we discussed this in the Intuit episode, but what we were doing most of the time in Chicago was actually Jukiyoki, which is, like, the original vocals are still there because basically it's just a bar that has, like, an internet jukebox, and then they've hooked up a sound system so you can play whatever you want on the jukebox and then sing over it. Oh, that's clever. See, I'm thinking back to Adam Warren in Empowered saying, setting up a scene in a karaoke bar and having it so that Slater Kinney and The Heavy were both somehow on the karaoke <laughs> list. And he acknowledged, he's like, that's the biggest fantasy leap in this entire series that involves, you know, sentient bondage wear and whatever else, is that you'd walk in and find you're no rock and roll fun on a karaoke list. Yeah, for sure. The other thing that relates to something you were just saying is that one of my favorite songs to do at Jukioki and the mere fact of me singing this song may be terribly politically incorrect, particularly in Australia. But one of my favorite songs to do was Truganini by Midnight Oil. Oh, okay. I don't think it's politically incorrect. But then again, I'm who I am. I'm a Canadian who landed in Australia 14 years ago. <laughs> so I'll let other people reserve their judgment. But I think you're doing it with the best of intentions. Yes, certainly. And I was actually, you know, you mentioned Beds Are Burning as a one-hit wonder in the U.S., which is true. Mm -hmm. But... True Ganini, when it came out years later, in I guess the mid-90s, it got quite a bit of MTV play, at least if you were, you know, watching the shows that played, like, quote-unquote alternative music. And I actually had that CD, and not the earlier one with Beds Are Burning on it, because I was a big fan of that song. And that album in general I liked quite a bit. I didn't really understand what any of it was about. Like, when I talk about the possibility of it being politically incorrect for possibly for me to sing it, like, I had no idea when I was listening to Truganini as a teenager that it had anything to do with violence against indigenous people. But I did catch that it kept talking about the Union Jack in flames, let it burn. And I thought that was kind of fun because that's, you know, when you're a teenager, whatever the politics are, if it involves, like, burning imperial flags, that sounds kind of cool. It's like, yeah, throw it out the window, burn it all down. Wait, what are we burning? Cool. Yeah. All right. We're good. <laughs> I've read a few memoirs of Australian radio people and such and, you know, Australian celebrities, and they would say, yeah, it's like Midnight Oil was one of the few bands at the time that was doing, like, overtly political rock music. And I mean, if you listen to the other music of the time, it's really about driving cars and picking up girls and being sad that someone's left you. Or occasionally you get something like, you know, Cole Chisel's Quezon, which is about PTSD in Vietnam War veterans in Australia. But again, that was a stretch. Like those were kind of tentpole things. Midnight Oil were the ones that were doing it. And again, you know, talking about whether it's okay, I mean, Midnight Oil was a bunch of white guys. So also true. <laughs> yeah. You know, Peter Garrett is like the whitest man from Whitedonia. So I think that Midnight Oil probably originally caught my eye on MTV because the lead singer looks exactly like the Martian Manhunter. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I mean, it's one thing to be like a really tall, bald guy, but he like really has that forehead. Yeah. And also he walks like he's a marionette and it's only connected at like the back of his skull. And <laughs> so when you move him along, everything sort of whiplashes below that, which coincidentally, slight tangent, if you put on... Uh, AJ Styles' intro music that my walk defaults to that <laughs> and while AJ Styles is a phenomenal wrestler ha pun and a repugnant human being that song is perfect for walking like that and that totally fits his character absolutely as an arrogant piece of garbage I have been a big defender of that song both as I don't want to say as a song because like you know as a WWE entrance song because you sort of have to judge those on a different scale but like both as like an entrance song and specifically as an entrance song for AJ Styles I've heard people say like oh but you know he's this like redneck guy from Georgia why does he enter to hip-hop music to which I say first of all he loves hip-hop music in real life we know that about him and secondly lots of rednecks of his generation and younger are way into hip-hop music also there's the whole dirty south thing that clearly does like yeah there's other things other than east and west coast hip-hop it exists yeah exactly exactly and like i'm like two years younger than aj styles and like when i was in high school that was like the number one thing that like because i you know i went to high school in tennessee and like the kind of like tough, you know, redneck kids, they were all into gangster rap in like the mid 90s in high school. And I'm mm -hmm. sure that that's like when AJ Styles started listening to rap music. I get that if you're not from the area, it like doesn't fit the stereotype for like a white redneck guy from the South to enter to hip hop, but it actually, it makes perfect sense. Speaking of apropos 
WWE entrances. While I agree that a lot of people right now need some new entrances, I want every Shield guy to get a new entrance, please, please, oh please. That is not just like angry butt rock with no lyrics. Yeah. With the exception of maybe Dean Ambrose, because it does sound like a car is crashing into a guitar at the beginning of this <laughs> thing, which totally fits him. Someone on Twitter was saying that Asuka's entrance music is not good, and I went, no, no, no. Listen, that music is like the slowest play out of any song in that basically it like takes its time and everything is too many solos and too many tom fills and everything before it gets to the end and it works because Asuka doesn't need to hurry because you'll be just as dead when she gets to the ring taking her time it's true also the same as I said about AJ Styles and I do think this should be a factor like you know kayfabe be damned if you pay attention like Asuka in real life is really into shitty American classic rock music which is what her entrance sounds like which makes complete sense, because that, that stuff is enormous in Japan. Yeah. Huge. To the point where I was following someone who is a, a photographer in Tokyo, and she goes to tons of, like, rock gigs and stuff and takes these amazing photos of these young bands. And I finally went, you know what, I'm going to look up what Moments Never Fade actually sounds like, because I've been following this person on Twitter for, like, two years, and I've never <laughs> listened to the band that she's obsessed with. And I listened, and they basically sound like, I don't know, just before you get to Creed kind of early 90s butt rock and i'm like cool yeah yeah. cool i'm still gonna like your photos i don't need to listen to this for sure i have said before getting back to what you said about the shield guys the biggest problem with wwe entrances is that basically every white guy who's not john cena or aj styles there's just way too much of a reliance on electric guitars it's been a while, let's be honest, since like electric guitars and especially that kind of, as you put it, butt rock was cool. Yeah. Kevin Owens has enough personality. Please give him a better theme. Yeah. His is one of the few that I can tell apart mm-hmm. from the other ones because it kind of sounds like a buzzsaw. Yeah, yeah. Which I do think suits him. But yeah, I would not object to him getting a cooler entrance theme anyway. The thing is, I think that suited him in like his first 10 seconds of being in NXT before he was revealed to be the Kevin Owens that we know and love. Like when he first turned up and like completely bulldozed CJ Parker even though he got his nose legit broken in that match. And so, yeah, which makes for an incredible image of him just like steamrolling C.J. Parker with blood gushing out of the bridge of his nose, which is about as Kevin Owensy as you can get. And it's like him as this unstoppable killing machine. Yes, that fits. The minute that he then became a bad guy and grew a personality that we knew he secretly had all along and became this kind of snarky heel, it didn't suit. Agreed, agreed. But then you want to talk about entrance music that doesn't suit and that has been changed a whole bunch. Let's talk about Cesaro and let's talk about Wade Barrett. How many entrance themes have these guys had? I can't believe how, honestly, how long Cesaro has kept that ridiculous siren. Oh, the fucking siren. Oh, it didn't work for rights to censor. It didn't work for Scott Steiner. Why does he have a siren? Is it because he's Swiss, and so therefore the Swiss flag kind of looks like an ambulance? And so therefore, do-do-do-do-do-do. I kind of think that's what it is. Oh, that's so dumb. I feel like that's the level that some people backstage at WWE are working at. <laughs> he's, got, he's got a cross on his tights. What if we make it like he's an ambulance coming? I used to have a go-to Cesaro joke, which is that... I worry about Swiss Lex Luthor running wild over Lucerne <laughs> while Swiss Superman is over here being a wrestler. But that's the thing is that Cesaro is both. <laughs> well, I assume that Swiss Lex Luthor has like a luxurious head of hair. Ooh, good point. While Swiss Superman is bald. <laughs> Switzerland, as we know, is essentially the mirror universe. Because Swiss Lex Luthor dresses in a slovenly way and Swiss Superman is just like wearing sharp as hell suits with scarves and sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. We need to write this. TM, TM, TM. (laughs) (laughs) So we were talking about other things. Now, initially with these return episodes, I told people, don't prepare. But L, being who they are, came preloaded with several topics. Much like Colin Mulcairn, whose reappearance on the show came with, I have five topics to discuss. Which one do you want to do? And I'm like... Cool, cool. (laughs) So please, you want to talk about Mr. Rogers, and I was very happy to hear this. Yes, I absolutely want to talk about Mr. Rogers. And as I mentioned before we were recording, I just watched an episode of Mr. Rogers like right before we started, and it was an episode from when I was a child, but I have no memory of it. You can watch Mr. Rogers in the U.S., at least, on Amazon Prime, which is where I found it. The episodes are not well organized. I really wanted to find the robot episode, which I'll get back to. Okay. But the episode that I ended up watching is the most meta thing I've ever seen, because it's an episode about jobs, 
And it says in the synopsis, Mr. Rogers talks about his job. And I was like, well, that has to be interesting. So it starts as they all do, with Mr. Rogers coming into his house, changing from his blazer into his cardigan, Mm -hmm. from his dress shoes into his sneakers. And then he says, you know, we've been talking about jobs this week, but I wanted to tell you about my job. My job is making this show. So I come into work and I write down things that I think matter to children. And then we make television about them. You're breaking the fourth wall. Don't break the fourth wall. (laughs) Oh, but wait. He then says, and this TV house that I have... And then, Uh at that moment, the camera cuts to a camera about 100 feet back. (gasps) And you can see the stage. You can see how his house is just two stages with a wall in between them. No. You know, between his kitchen and his living room. Oh, no. You can see the three big TV cameras set up outside of that stage. And he's there on the stage gesturing. And talking about how he comes into the set and pretends that his, it's his house and talks to the children at home, and these TV cameras film him. Oh, man. Oh, no. This is like Wile E. Coyote talking to those kids and talking about how a roadrunner is delicious in every part. I don't want that. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know, this is one of the things that I think is fascinating about Mr. Rogers is that he is, I don't want to, I'm trying to figure out exactly how to word this so that it doesn't sound negative because I think we have an impulse against this kind of thing. But he's very into like, imagination is important, but there's a difference between imagination and reality. And most children's television is not interested in that difference. That's a really good point. Because, I mean, you have the neighborhood of make-believe, and you have to step away from the main set to get there. I think that's a really interesting distinction. Yeah. And, in fact, in this same episode where he talks about his job, while in his house, once the camera you know goes back to a normal perspective, he gets out a box of neighborhood of make-believe puppets and holds them up and shows them to the camera and, like, does the different voices that he does for them. Oh, no. King Friday, no. (laughs) Oh, God. You know, there was one kid, one kid who bought into that too hard and then, like, broke because, oh, my God, King Friday lives in a box in Mr. Rogers' closet. (laughs) No, it's true. There's a famous story of the crossover which happened in the 80s between Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers had invited Big Bird, Carol Spinney, to appear on his show. But he said, you know, we like to talk about the reality behind things on my show. So he wanted Carol Spinney to come on his show and take the Big Bird head off. Oh, Jesus. And say, this is how Big Bird works. No, no. And of course, rightfully, Carol Spinney was like, I am absolutely not doing that. That's not the way we do things on Sesame Street. That would break children's hearts. And so the compromise, which is the perfect compromise that they end up doing is that Big Bird appears in the neighborhood of make-believe and is friends with the puppets there and never appears in the outside world on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. That makes perfect sense. Synthesis. Synergy. I like it. Yes. Because, oh my god, that would go totally against the Henson philosophy entirely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, although they play with it sometimes, you know, there is that moment in one of the later specials where they look down. The Muppets look down. Of course, this isn't Sesame Street. This was like, you know, the Muppets aimed at a slightly older audience. But they literally look down and are like, who are those people? (laughs) And then they just decide not to think about that anymore. Yeah. I mean, come on. The Muppets were giving us the suspension of disbelief that a bear and a frog were twins. So that's okay. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because what I remember of Mr. Rogers, because Mr. Rogers wasn't as prevalent as Mr. Dressup and Sesame Street when I was a kid. Mr. Dressup being the almost the Canadian equivalent. No, I don't know him at all, but that's interesting. Yeah, Mr. Dressup was sort of a, a guy with glasses and kind of balding hair. But you're right, there wasn't that distinction between make-believe and reality because the puppets that Mr. Dressup interacted with were in his house, even though it would be from, okay, we're doing a segment where I'm showing you how to draw a picture, and then I'll go over to the tickle trunk, which has all the fun props and everything, and that's when the puppets would come into play. But the things I remember from Mr. Rogers were when he would step out of the house and go to places in his neighborhood and be like, all right, today I'm going to, like, you know, a bottling plant, and you're going to see how all the bottles run along conveyor belts, and this is how this stuff that you find in the supermarket gets to the supermarket. 
and like it went from this is you know a farm where stuff comes in and it goes to a warehouse and the warehouse picks it up and being a kid who loved robots and transformers and machines and stuff that was fascinating to me to watch all these bottles running along, running along this little track and they would then get filled up and the caps would get put on it was the equivalent to childhood lucas of those videos you see now of like stuff getting put together or hydraulic presses squishing things or like you know stuff like that <laughs> yeah for sure there's the classic crayon factory episode oh yeah that a lot of people remember because it's just so like a crayon factory is just such a beautiful thing to see somehow mm-hmm. i have always like i grew up watching mr rogers you know on my pbs station when i was a kid it came on like right when i got out of school and my mom was an educator and like she would watch it with me when i was really little and like you know of course then i you know i went to college for puppetry i had like just very basic channels in my apartment for a while when i was in puppetry school and i would come home to eat lunch and watch mr rogers neighborhood while i was eating lunch every day and he's so sincere children mattered to him so much and like don't get me wrong i'm not saying like you can't make fun of mr rogers you know i like mr mcfeely jokes are very old but i understand where they come from and literally the neighborhood of make-believe segment about work on the episode i just watched there was a beaver laying pipe so like i get how there are jokes to be made so dumb i shouldn't be laughing but i was never there for jokes at mr rogers expense or like those weird rumors that he was like a sniper or a child molester and like all that bullshit yeah it's just one of those things where it's like no one can quite understand there are people who can't accept that someone is just good yeah and nice and wants to do something good they have to like twist it as oh it must be some sort of parole program or something which makes no sense the minute you apply any kind of critical thinking to it yeah and also frankly i feel like all of that kind of stuff is not unrelated to fred rogers effeminacy yeah and that may like that makes me all the more uncomfortable or like you know there must be something shady about this man wanting to like entertain you know and care about children Ugh, get a new line yeah as we were talking about it in the pre-show, I looked up a couple of things because I wanted to correctly represent it. But something so specific about Fred Rogers especially, and not just about make-believe, but allowing kids to talk about, for lack of a better word, their feelings, about their emotions. And mm-hmm. saying, like, you know, it's okay to get sad sometimes. You can get sad. It's not a bad thing. We are not trying to banish sadness from your life. And saying, no, you know, when you're sad, you should just get happy. It's like, no, you're going to feel this way sometimes, and that's okay. And, like, that's such a huge difference to a lot of of the media that was around at the time totally he had a song that always sticks with me about anger and about how sometimes you feel really angry and there are ways that you can let your anger out that don't hurt anybody and that's what you should try to do because you can't help feeling angry sometimes mm-hmm. and then, yeah it's just like that kind of thing is so important and like he was so invested in teaching children not how to read and write because there were other shows doing that but in teaching them how to be members of a community. I mean, that's literally, you know, won't you be my neighbor? That's what the show is about. Yeah, it's like you you should know the person who runs your corner store. You should know the person who lives next to you. You should know your mailman, you know, that kind of stuff. Exactly. And, you know, he he was a Christian minister. There are a lot of stories, particularly from the 80s, when his show was still going strong and the, like, moral majority was a big thing. There are stories that, like, Mr. Rogers would be at, like charity dinners and like political photo op type events and things like that. And these more conservative Christian leaders would approach him and try to get him to side with them against people and say, you know, and pass judgments on like people of other religions or gay people or whatever. And Mr. Rogers would always just say, I think that they're okay just the way they are. Oh, love it. Or, you know, that those kind of things that he would say on his show was like literally his philosophy. What I found in the research that I did momentarily is that this is something that had never occurred to me. He was a huge proponent of the VCR. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to almost quote this verbatim. And he's saying that like he went to court and said that you know people recording episodes to watch later should not infringe copyright because there are kids who want to watch my show who aren't able to watch it at the time. And I don't think they should be restricted just because they can't see it then. And I don't normally do this, but I'm going to read this quote verbatim because oh my god as someone who used to listen to shows like cord cutters that would be about you know trying to get the right to watch tv where and when you want this is kind of incredibly forward thinking that it was happening in 1983 
So I'm just going to read this. And again, apologies, I don't normally do this, but this is kind of great. No, please do. Some public stations, as well as commercial stations, program the neighborhood at hours when some children cannot use it. I have always felt that with the advent of all this new technology that allows people to take the neighborhood off the air, and I'm speaking for the neighborhood because that's what I produce, that they then become much more active in the programming of their family's television life. Very frankly, I am opposed to people being programmed by others. My whole approach in broadcasting has always been, you are an important person just the way you are. You can make healthy decisions. Maybe I'm going on too long, but I just feel that anything that allows a person to be more active in control of his or her life in a healthy way is important. And holy shit, how good is that? Yeah, it's amazing. There's also, there is an episode of Intuit where I talk about some of the same stuff, which is the Daniel Tiger episode that... uh, Oh my god, yes. And were it not for a former guest of the show, Catherine Van Arendonk, it would never have occurred to me that Daniel Tiger is a sequel series to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. (laughs) Sorry, please continue. (laughs) There is a video you can watch on YouTube, and it's an amazing video. That's, I believe, from 1969. And Mr. Rogers had been on the air for a few years, but he wasn't like a big public figure among adults yet. Because he had like another 20 years before he really reached that level of like everyone in the world knowing who he was. But he testified before the U.S. Senate because there was a proposal on the table to cut PBS funding in the name of funding the war in Vietnam. And he testified about why he feels that shows like his, that educational shows for children are important. And he just, like, he's very calm. He's very much the same man he is on his TV show. He explains to these fairly hostile conservative senators like what he does like they don't know him they've never seen his show he explains what his goal is he talks about like he quotes the lyrics to one of his songs as an example and he just like very patiently explains like this is why i think what i do matters and basically at the end one of the senators i forget exactly the wording but one of the senators is like i think you just won the argument (laughs) just amazing and you know i want to go back sometimes and kick my childhood self for going oh you know mr rogers is boring can i watch something else because no no pay attention child lucas <laughs> it's important oh i found the quote from the senator it was john o pastor who's the chairman of the subcommittee after mr rogers speech he said i'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy and this is the first time i've had goosebumps for the last two days look like looks like you just earned the 20 million wow i love it so tell me about this robot episode so this is one that i do remember from when i was a child and then i saw it again you know as i mentioned before when i used to watch mr rogers in college i saw this episode again and thought it was all the more amazing in retrospect i haven't seen it since then if i can track it down on on amazon prime i'll let people know but the episodes that they have are not well organized anyway there is an episode of mr rogers from the 80s that's about robots. I think R2-D2 may make a guest appearance in it, but I may be getting confused with something else. But anyway, it's very clear that Fred Rogers and the people he was working with on this show genuinely believed, based on the sort of cultural zeitgeist that was out there, that the kids who were, you know, who were tiny children in the 1980s, basically people our age, would grow up to live in a world where robots were all over the place. Makes sense. So he did this episode of, like, getting small children acclimated to the idea of robots. And the thing that he kept coming back to is that and of course you know if you're a fan of robots from science fiction this may almost be like an offensive thing to say but he keeps coming back to the idea that like robots may look kind of like people they may walk around they may even talk to you but it's important to understand that they're not people and they don't have feelings because it's true because i mean especially a lot of media was anthropomorphizing robots when in fact again that's another kind of meta step out from Okay, it's one thing to be like, I'm going to see a robot in a movie. But it's like, no, if you see a robot in real life, that robot is a tool. It's a tool being used by a person. Yeah, exactly. I've just Googled it, and it was episode 1513. And (laughs) yeah, I can see him meeting a little R2-D2 type robot that has a tie and a jacket painted onto it. Oh, yeah. I remember that robot. That robot was around a lot in the 80s. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to drop a link into the chat one sec. 
I kind of love how exhaustively researched a lot of, especially kids programming from that time is. Like falling down the rabbit hole of every guest star on You Can't Do That on Television was a bit of a revelation for me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the one. Yeah, so it doesn't, ha- the R- episode doesn't have R2-D2 in it. It just has a bunch of R2-D2 type two-legged cylindrical robots. Yeah, totally. And inexplicably, there's a picture of someone from the Pittsburgh Pirates. I don't know why. It's true. Maybe it had to do with a batting machine or something. Like a pitching machine, rather. <laughs> oh, it's a robot that plays video, and they played video of baseball and football, uh, is what it says on the notes below. Go. That's so cool. I used to have a robot. It didn't really play video, but it had a clever illusion of playing video on its chest when I was a kid. Okay. I'm going to ask you to explain the fact that you had a robot. <laughs> well, it wasn't a real robot. It was a toy robot, but it had, like, you put batteries in it and it walked around. It played pictures across its chest. When I say it had the clever illusion of having video, what it was, I believe, just like remembering how it worked, was that there was like translucent white plastic on its chest. And underneath that, there was some kind of like transparency that had images printed on it of like spaceships flying through the air. And so when you activated the robot, in addition to like walking and making robot noises, and I think its eyes lit up, there would be like a light in his chest so that you would see the the transparency of the spaceships. They would like move horizontally. It was like a long, you know, it was like on two spindles, I imagine, on the inside. I never took this robot apart. I'm just mm. piecing this together. So that there was like a scroll of that transparency of spaceships. And because it was spaceships moving laterally, they appeared to actually be, you know, moving as if it was a video, when in fact there was clearly no video technology involved. When in fact it was clear this robot was bent on deception. Yes. This was in fact a Decepticon. <laughs> like most robots, it was a liar. <laughs> the thing is, I can remember going to people's houses, and we never had one, but people who had the little ROB, the little Rob robot that went with the NES, and I never went to some, I, I remember seeing it at maybe one or two friends' houses, and no one ever had a working one. It was always, oh, it used to work, and now it doesn't. I remember seeing pictures of that in, like, the Nintendo magazines, but I don't think I ever encountered one of those in real life. I'm of an age that when we got to high school, in one of our tech classes, we had to do a little project where we had to input commands to a little robot arm that had almost like a little bottle factory. And it would be like, oh, you had to tell it to, okay, the conveyor belt advanced this far, the robot arm needs to swing this many degrees, and then go down and then grab a thing. And it's basically meant to teach you that robots are hard and no one should do them. <laughs> because you get all the way to the end and you get the arm to like lift up from the floor and turn to the left and twist its little hand around and reach down and grab. And if you were one millimeter off, it would miss the neck of the bottle and the entire thing was for naught and you had to start over and write it again. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's like scared straight for robots. <laughs> this sucks and you'll get a bad grade if you try and do it haphazardly. Let this be a lesson to you. I had another robot when I was a kid that was smaller. The the one I was talking about earlier with the spaceships on his chest was probably maybe like a foot tall. And I had another one that was much smaller than that. I mean, it's hard to remember exactly how big things were when you were tiny. But I would guess it was maybe like four inches tall. Maybe not quite that small, but fairly small, maybe six inches. And it had some kind of electric eye in it. It was sort of shaped like Wally with like a oh, yeah. squat body and then a little head with two eyes and little claws on the sides. And it had some kind of actual electric eye in it of some primitive sort because it would turn around before it hit things. Like it would just sort of roll around at random, but then if it got close to a wall, it would turn in a different direction. Okay, kind of like a prehistoric Roomba. Yeah, yeah, like a Roomba that served no purpose. <laughs> so like a Roomba. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I remember it being fun to like when I when there was like a like a party or a family gathering. It was you could like release it into a room full of adults, and it would sort of like cause chaos by zooming around to the floor and like almost running into people's feet and then changing direction. <laughs> yes, yes, my pretty, <laughs> go out and wreak havoc. The thing about Mister Rogers is that when I think about Mister Rogers, I also end up thinking about Pee Wee's Playhouse. Okay. Because they're kind of the same premise, just like coming from different cultural perspectives. And in fact, like Pee-wee's Playhouse is very clearly based on like old children's shows that like Paul Rubens watched when he was a kid. And Mr. Rogers is a children's show of that era when Paul Rubens was a kid. It just lasted for 40 years. <laughs> I was really into Pee-wee's Playhouse when I was a kid, when, like the entire time it was on. Um, and of course, I've revisited it as an adult. I actually taught it 
in a class when I was in grad school, I did a class about queer theory and queer readings of movies and TV. That does not shock me, Al, <laughs> because I've spoken to you more than once. Right. I did an independent study in film school about queer theory in film. And then I basically built an undergrad class because in my grad school, we had the option of pitching undergrad classes that we wanted to teach. And then they just had to get approved by a committee. And then they went on the course catalog and we got to teach them and be paid for it. And that was pretty, that was one of the best things about that whole grad school experience. One of the books that I used in that class class was a book which I recommend to anyone who's interested in queer readings of media called Making Things Perfectly Queer by Alexander Doty. It's D-O-T-Y Doty. It has a whole chapter about Pee-wee's Playhouse, taking the premise that basically Pee-wee's Playhouse is a classic format children's show of the Mr. Rogers style, but filtered through the memory of a queer adult. Okay. And I will add as a caveat, Paul Rubens has never officially come out, but I mean, <laughs> come on. You have the same basic format. Like he arrives at the playhouse at the beginning of every episode, just like Mr. Rogers arrives, you know, in the neighborhood. He welcomes the children in and then they do certain activities and they make snacks and they talk to different people. But everything is sort of deeply overdetermined in this sort of Kenneth Anger inspired way where everything is turned up. You know, all of the colors are so bright and all of the characters are so over the top. And there's just this element of deliberate camp applied on top of that children's show format, which I was way into as a kid, like not understanding that this is what was going on at all. It just worked as that kid's show. Again, not shocked that you say that, <laughs> having spoken to you more than once. <laughs> but there are things that Dodie points out that I never, I mean, even as an adult, it had not occurred to me. But like all of the male adults other than Pee-wee on Pee-wee's Playhouse are like gay porn icons. <laughs> like literally you have a sailor who, of course, was Phil Hartman, Captain Carl. You have not just a cowboy, but an incredibly handsome black cowboy. Cowboy Curtis, who was uh, Lawrence, Lawrence Fishburne. Fishburne. Yeah. You have a really handsome, muscular lifeguard who always runs around in his swim trunks. I forget what his name was. He was not an actor that went on to be super famous. <laughs> I feel like there's another one that fits that format. There was a handsome Latino soccer player in later episodes. And then you have the two like prominent women on the show, basically Kate Pearson and Divine. <laughs> You have the woman who's referred to as the most beautiful woman in Puppet Land, but she has this like over-the-top red bouffant wig and these incredibly kind of overdone floofy dresses. And then the other woman who changes, there's two of these women, and they moved the show from one coast to the other after a season, and a lot of the cast changed. But there's always another woman who is also sort of campy, but she's this like kind of heavy-set, more uh, comical figure. Also, there's in the first season, you have the cab driver and the male lady who are both sort of coded as lesbians. Like there's just there's all of this queer iconography operating at this level that is sort of it's, it's very like readable. And I think even as like a queer child who didn't know about any of this yet, there's like a level at which I sort of was picking it up. But it was completely under the radar of the like gatekeepers of children's television you know and then of course peewee went and ruined it by being caught masturbating in an adult theater but you know that was the sad ending of this whole phenomenon really sadly making what was an incredible project into a punchline yes i jumped onto the wikipedia for peewee's playhouse because i wanted to confirm something and inexplicably they have a list down the bottom where it says that Rob Zombie was a production assistant and John Singleton was a security guard on the show, as in director John Singleton. Now, see, I can look at Pee-wee's Playhouse and see a direct line between its aesthetics and Rob Zombie's aesthetics, but not so much John Singleton. It's almost like, you know, Pee-wee's Playhouse is to something like the B-52s what Rob Zombie's aesthetics is to something like, you know, Psychobilly music or the Misfits. Absolutely, yeah, totally. It's that same kind of cartoonish hype up of the same things. Yeah, very much so. There's also this, the original King of Cartoons is one of my favorite characters. There are two Kings of Cartoons, which they never, they never address. They just keep saying, hey, it's the King of Cartoons, but they're two different actors. The second one is the guy who played Blackula. No. Yes. 
But the first one, which I'm not sure what else he did, or I don't remember his name, but he's actually my favorite because he is 100% playing drunk every moment that he's on screen on Peavy's Playhouse. So I have this idea, This I guess the kids these days would say headcanon. The king of cartoons, he doesn't really have a kingdom. He just has a collection of cartoons. And he has this loyal lesbian cab driver who drives him around because he's obviously too inebriated to drive. And he's just this sort of... Dixie's cool. I'll call Dixie. She'll help me out. Right. He's this sort of spent, worn-out figure who is sort of dissolute and has nothing like going on in his life except that he has a standing invitation once a week to come to Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse and play him a cartoon. And that's the thing that he looks forward to, coming in with his projector and saying, I have a great cartoon for you today. This is like the one, like the one skill that he has, is showing up and showing a cartoon. <laughs> that's amazing. Now I want crossovers with the King of Town. From- <laughs> <laughs> they're sort of similar, and they're like uselessness and dissolution. Since we're talking about Pee-wee's Playhouse, the other interesting person to appear in season one, I believe it is, is Natasha Leone. Yes, I couldn't believe that. I saw I spotted that name on the wiki. I'm like, Elle's going to say something about this. Elle's got to say something about this. Natasha Leone, you know, now famous as the like lesbian Lothario character on Orange is the New Black, was one of the Playhouse gang who were three tiny children who would come into the Playhouse and interact with Pee Wee, always as though he was their equal <laughs> and not an adult. But of course, the thing about Natasha Leone is like she's so distinctive looking that when she was a tiny child, she basically looked exactly the same as she does in her <laughs> late thirties. Totally, like because she has that big curly red hair and that like very distinctive face. But she's like seven, I think, on that show. <laughs> yeah, some people just turn up in life, and you look at them, and you're like, "That is who you are." <laughs> yeah, exactly. I will just bring things full circle. When we used to do Jukioki in Chicago, we could do anything off of an internet jukebox, which means we could do, you know, we could do Grimes, we could do any B-52 song, we could do Midnight Oil. But one song that we could not do that I always said would be the perfect duet between myself and my friend Jessica was the theme song to Pee Wee's Playhouse. Because obviously, you know, being that she could do Grimes, like she could sing in that really high pitch a Cindy Lauper voice. But then there are also the lines that Pee Wee and the Kite and Terry, there's like the little lines that, throughout all of which I could have done. If we'd only had a, access to the song, I feel like that would have been our ultimate performance. And I'm sure it would have been exceptional. <laughs> All right, Al. If people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Well, I listed all my podcasts earlier. The actual easiest thing to do, follow me on Twitter. That's at another L. And you can actually go to my Twitter profile, and it has links to the Twitters of all my podcasts, which you can follow, and then follow those podcasts and see when episodes are posted and, you know, get the names and go search for them on Apple Podcasts, whatever you prefer to do. Also, if you follow me on Twitter, you know, whenever an episode of any of my podcasts goes live, I post it there. So that's my number one recommendation is at another L on Twitter. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming back. I'm now going to go and fall down a rabbit hole of Mr. Rogers episodes. I absolutely recommend that. All right. Thanks, Al. Thank you. very much to L. Collins for their time. Last time I talked to L. about cocktails, they said they were primarily a beer drinker, so I put together a concoction using a variety of flavors, some English ale, and some down-home Tennessee bourbon. However, it's recently gotten very hot in Australia, so gin drinks are the way to go. So I present the Miss Yvonne. In a shaker with no ice, combine one ounce of botanical gin, half an ounce of lemon juice, half an ounce of simple syrup, and one egg white. Dry shake for 20 seconds to emulsify. 
Crack open the shaker, throw in some ice, and shake vigorously for at least 30 seconds. Strain into a pre-chilled cocktail glass and top off with amber ale. I used four pints. Finally, add two dashes of Peychaud's bitters to the froth at the top of the drink. Truly a concoction worthy of the most beautiful woman in puppet land. Enjoy! The Mather View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathaview at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. Just to let you know, I am mostly booked till the end of the year. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathaview, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. There are lots of great rewards like early access to episodes, physical mail, cursive tweets, and I would just really, really appreciate it. One of the reward levels comes with special thanks on the air, so thank you very much to former guest of the show, Melissa Bright. I do hereby forgive your hot dog opinions. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head on over to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating or write a review. I'll even read your review out on the show. Won't that be nice? Like the music I play on the show? There's a Spotify playlist for that. Head on over to bit.ly slash themathaview with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist with music going back all the way to episode one, featuring all the songs I've used in the show, including this one. It's Give Me Back My Man by the inimitable and legendary B-52s. I update the playlist every Wednesday as soon as the episode is live, so make sure to subscribe to get that new music in your ears. Next week, it's the return of Kit Walker. And get comfy, because we're going to be talking about Teen Wolf. Join me, won't you? So, by the way, the last time that I recorded an episode with you, I was accidentally really stoned. (laughs) I had not planned to be, but we recorded, it was like nighttime for me, I think it was like 9pm, and I had hung out with someone earlier that day, and I was just like, what's the harm? I'll have plenty of time before I record with Lucas, but anyway, my point is, I'm sorry that you had to edit that. I will be much more together in this episode. Oh my god. (laughs) No, honestly, it's just like I may have joked to Megan because I had said that you were coming on. I'm like, hey, I was coming on. When I was talking to them, there was like, I think we recorded for like an hour and 10, and there was maybe 40 minutes of content. <laughs> and there was a lot of thinking pauses. I'm like, that's cool. It, it makes it really easy to edit, so that's fine. And Megan, bless her heart, was like, sounds like them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think as soon as we got off the recording, I texted Megan and was like, I feel so bad. I was accidentally really high on Lucas's podcast. (laughs) But, you know, there's this thing, and I think this is probably pretty common with weed. Like, I don't get paranoid like some people do when I'm smoking it. But when I'm high, I never want to tell anyone that I'm high. Even if it's someone that I know rationally, it will not be a big deal. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like your brain is constantly going just just be cool. Be be cool. Yeah, exactly. Everyone be cool. No one'll notice if you don't say anything. <laughs> oh man. Alright. <laughs> That's fantastic. No, that puts it all into context. And this is all stayed in the episode. <laughs> not to blow up your spot. I'm sure your various followers will be cool hearing about this as well. But if not, hey followers, shh, be cool. Be be cool. It's fine. For a long time I had a policy of not talking about marijuana on the internet. And I still don't do it as much as like some people that I know who are very open about it. But as time has gone on these past couple years, like it's like legal in multiple states now. I feel like the stigma is really like largely evaporating and also I'm like pretty secure in my status as a 
functioning adult, like freelance writer about <laughs> oh, that. Well, that too. I was going to say as a freelance writer about like entertainment content, which is not a field where that's going to stop you from getting a job. <laughs> I mean, Christ, you've got the McElroys talking about how they were given some very nice edibles before a show, and that's totally cool. <laughs> right. And they're the right. nicest boys, so. <laughs> than they were in Portland at the time. It's one of those things where it's like, frankly, I have not smoked weed since I was in high school and I'm now 35 and I've lived in the city for 14 years and I have no fucking idea how to get it. <laughs> not even a little bit. It's like, I know some friends who smoke weed. It's like, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I, I don't even know how I would start that conversation. How I would walk up and go, hey, hey, friend, you, you know, you know this thing you do. Like, could I? No, no, no. Oh, I'm presuming. I'm so sorry. I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, here's the funny thing, and this is becoming ever more clear that it's something that will remain in the episode. The funny thing about weed is that, like, when I was a kid, you know, I grew up in the 80s, in the, like, Nancy Reagan just say no era, and I was presented with this idea from a young age that when I got older, like, specifically when I became a teenager, other teenagers would try to get me to, like, smoke pot and do other drugs all the time. Oh yeah, this idea that drug dealers would give you shit for free all the time. Yeah, there was going to be this like constant peer pressure. And here's the thing, I didn't actually ever smoke until I was in my early 20s and I didn't really like it didn't become something that I did regularly, which it's not always been something I've done regularly since then, but like, you know, at times in my life it has. And that didn't start until I was like in my mid 20s when I spent the summer doing an internship at a puppet theater in Portland, Oregon. You can imagine how one thing leads to the other. <laughs> it's right up there with, oh, I spent the summer at a tree planting camp in northern Canada. Oh, really? How'd you pass the time? We worked it out. <laughs> Right, right. But the thing is, like, when I was actually a teenager, I knew people that smoked. I hung out with people that smoked. Like, I was a, you know, freaky teenager, and I hung out with the other freaky teenagers, and a lot of them smoked weed in high school. I think they all just thought that I was too square to want to, and I was always sort of, like, curious about it, but, like, I had had too much, like, fear-mongering drilled into my head to ever say, hey, can I try that? I just kept thinking, like, if I hang out with these kids, eventually they're going to be like, hey, try this. You know what? They never were. That never happened. It was literally the first time I smoked was when I was in college and I had a really good friend, actually two really good friends who had specifically made plans to hang out and smoke pot. And I knew that that's what they were doing. And because they were my really good friends and I had been curious about it at this point for a good like six years, I was just like, hey, can I come over and try some of that? I've always kind of wanted to and I never have. And they were like, sure. <laughs> That's literally what it took was me asking. The concept of like the threat of peer pressure was nothing in my opinion. Now, admittedly, that may have been because I was like kind of a nerd in high school. Like it may have been that if I was like cooler, that would have caused people to perceive me differently. And they would have like thought that I should have been doing it and like handed it to me. But, you know, I was not that kid. I mean, frankly, I mean, I was the same. I had a bunch of just stoner burnout friends in high school. And yeah, they would always smoke. But the thing is, they always needed a sober person to like be their lookout <laughs> to make sure that the school cop was not wandering around. And I would then just stand around while they did that. And yeah, it was never actually passed my way. Or if it was, it was in the middle of like school hours. And I would just be like, you know what? Maybe not now. <laughs> One of those things where, you know, I first smoked at a party and finally someone did in fact pass it to me. I went, all right, I will try this thing cool and then thought okay nothing's happened and everyone told me you're talking really fast although hey I'm me so I'm always talking really fast but it was one of those things where after a while I, I realized in my 20s especially in my early 20s I had a serious stigma against people who smoke pot and I remember like being in my later 20s and early 30s and really trying to like parse that and think why do I have this like terrible association that someone's like oh yeah and I smoke weed and my brain kind of like flashes red for a second and goes ugh and then I really thought about it and it's because I knew a lot of kind of shitty people who smoked weed in high school <laughs> and like really identifying that and going no I just didn't like these people and I assumed that those were the traits of a, a weed smoker and so therefore I would meet people who I think were cool and they'd say that and I would go oh rather than attributing those associations just attribute the weed smoking it's real easy <laughs> <laughs> right right but you know I'm not a big Akewood reader mm -hmm. but I do wish I had tried more things when I was younger because I now realize that being getting in trouble, trouble is a fake, fake idea, idea. <laughs> I love that because in the recording we were actually in sync. <laughs> oh, I have to tell you a thing that made me really incredibly angry yesterday. 
outrage, and I think you're the person to appreciate this. We've got some friends, uh, Tony and Rena. I know Tony through improv. We used to do improv together. He's an American guy who came over to work here like three years ago, and they're really, really lovely people. And for being the teetotalingest squares people that I know, throw the best parties. Like they will like mm-hmm. invite people over for like a barbecue or something, and it will just be the best. And they like have a karaoke machine at their house, and it's just like you go to Tony and Rena's place, you have a good time. Because especially since we've had the baby, they have lots of baby stuff, and they've been like bringing over things, and like Rena always wants to come. In hang out and help Kim Kill and it's great. She doesn't always work weekdays and so she has time to come over and be like, you know, I'll hang out with the baby. You can like go to sleep or do shopping or whatever that you need to. And so out of nowhere, Kimiko messages me when I'm at work and says, hey, Tony and Rena were hanging out with this person. I don't think you, I don't know if you know him. And then sends me a Wikipedia link to Paul Dini. (laughs) And there may have been like a solid page of like single word, all capital screaming from me. And I'm like, what? Okay, you need to explain yourself right the hell now. (laughs) And so it turns out, and she's like, yeah, apparently they were in Australia last week. Him and his wife. I'm like, Misty was there! (laughs) And they're like, yeah, they were in Australia. And and, because Rena works in travel, so she helped book their holiday. And they stopped in and hung out, and they went to like a wildlife park. I'm like, I could have been hanging with Paul Dini at a zoo. Are you serious? So eventually, (laughs) I took a breath, and I messaged Tony and Rena, and I said, so... Uh, guys, I thought we were friends. If you if you know, like, some famous people, that would be great if you could, like, hook me up with someone whose work I really admire. And it's like, oh, yeah, we've known them for ages. We used to hang out with that. Here's a picture of us, all of us, holding a koala. I'm like, this is not helping. This is actually making it worse. <laughs> <sighs> and it's like, I don't know how you say, hey, Tony, the next time you talk to Paul Dini, could Paul Dini please come on my podcast? And I don't know how you start that conversation. Maybe I need to make a special business card for it. Now it's to the point where I send him emails when I spot a new Tim Tam flavor, or I just started reading because I found out my local library has like all of Pluto. <laughs> so I've started reading that, and then message him halfway through the first volume with like, "Okay, look, Chris, you told me this was a good comic. You did not say that there was a former like war droid who was trying to learn how to play the piano to deal with his PTSD." And he's a butler to a blind piano master who has a fear of abandonment and pushes people away. I was not prepared for that. He's like, exact words. Yeah, dog, it's a good-ass comic. Yeah, if anyone... Actually, let me just look up. I gotta, see, this always happens. I always go to say, oh, if anyone wants to know, go back to the previous episode. And I forget what number it was. Because <laughs> there's like 50 of them now. <laughs>